for everybody. Great to see you, especially if you're a visitor. Great to have you with us again this morning. The story is told of the visiting Bible teacher who had been doing a, a weekend, a special Bible teaching at a particular church, and he'd been looking at some key themes in the book of Hebrews. He'd been having a great time with the church, looking at topics like the supremacy of Jesus, the way that Jesus acts as our great high priest, the, uh, his once-for-all sacrifice for us and his all-sufficiency for us. And he'd really enjoyed his time at the church, and he'd really enjoyed his time staying with the family that had been hosting him. The lady of the house in particular had cooked some absolutely phenomenal meals uh, for him to eat while he'd been with them. So when the weekend was over and he was getting ready to leave on the Monday morning, the lady of the house asked him if he would write in their visitor's book. I don't know if you have a visitor's book in your house. We do. We stopped using it about 10 years ago. But for the first 15 years or so of our marriage, we did use it. And he, she, she thought it would be lovely if he would just write some nice things, put his name and address and some nice comments. That's what you do in visitor's books. So before he left, he sat down. And he wrote his name and his address, and then in the space for the comments, he decided just to write down the words Hebrews 6.10. Didn't write down what Hebrews 6.10 says. He just thought he'd write the reference down, and then when the family came in later in that evening, they could look at it themselves, and they'd look up the reference, and they thought, and he thought, that'd be lovely. It'd be a nice just way of uh, expressing his, his thankfulness for their amazing hospitality and care. He'd had such a lovely time with the family. And they treated him so well, and he had some amazing food and fellowship with him. The food with them, the food in particular, was so good. So he thought Hebrews 6:10 would be the perfect verse to leave in the comments section. And of course, Hebrews 6:10 is one of the verses in our passage that we're looking at today, which we'll be looking at in a moment. And Hebrews 6:10 says this: God is not unjust; He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you've helped His people and continue to help them. That's a lovely verse, isn't it? And what a lovely verse to get as a kind of thank you for your hospitality. Uh, so he assumed that later in the day they would look that verse up and they would be just really encouraged by that. He thought it would be really nice just to express how grateful he was and how much they'd really loved him and cared for him, especially the amazing food that the lady of the house had prepared for him. Well, the problem was that the guy was a little bit like me. He often transposed his numbers when he wrote them down. I'm not sure if it's an actual scientific ailment or not, but I certainly have it, often transposed numbers. So instead of writing Hebrews 6.10, he actually wrote down Hebrews 10 verse 6. And when the lady of the house picked up the visitor's book later in the day, she saw Hebrews 10 verse 6 and she, she looked it up in her Bible. And this is what it says in Hebrews 10 verse 6. With burnt offerings, you were not pleased. <laughs> Always make sure you get your Bible verses right. Well, we're not going to look at Hebrews 10 verse 6 today. That's for another time, and maybe next year sometime when we go back to that. But we are going to look at Hebrews 6, verse 10, and also at the other verses in the passage that surround the, uh, that verse. So we're going to read our whole passage together. There's an outline on your seat. It's got all the various Bible verses that we're looking at and the key points. Everything will be up on the screen as well. But let's read our whole passage, which is Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 12. hope you like my glasses today. I've gone for a new kind of look. Jack Duckworth, eat your heart out. Hopefully they'll stay on as I read. I just can't drop my head down, so I'm just going to hold my Bible up, <laughs> and uh, we'll see how we go. So, it's kind of, uh, it's a good look, isn't it? Anyway, I can't, afford, I can't afford to get them fixed, I just haven't had time. So Hebrews 4, verses 6 to 12, says this. Uh, sorry, Hebrews 6. <laughs> just, just check it. Hebrews 6, verse 4, says this. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain after falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is a passage that people often really struggle to understand. It's got some really kind of uh, complex things in it. And at first glance, it's difficult to work out what is the writer actually saying. Is he saying that if somebody puts their faith and their trust in Jesus and surrenders their life to him, but then they fall away, to use the words that the writer uses in this passage, and they make a mess of things and they get into stuff they shouldn't and they let God down and they turn away from him. Is he saying that they can never be brought back to repentance once they've done that? They can never be brought back to repentance and find forgiveness and acceptance from God. Is that what he's saying? If that's what he's saying, we're all in deep trouble, every single one of us. Because the reality is that most of us have behaved like that at some point in our lives. Some of you might be behaving like that at the moment. And if we're honest, whilst you might not always turn away from God in big spectacular ways, we all do sin every day. So in effect, we are acting like those people all day, every day. Every time we sin, we are turning our backs on God. So is that what he means? What does he mean by the expression fall away? Does this mean that we can be saved and then somehow lose our salvation? If we fall away for a while, are we doomed? What does this what does this passage actually mean? Well, one of the best ways to study and interpret the Bible is to look at the context and then also to see what else the Bible has to say on the same subject. And if we just go back a few verses to the end of chapter 4, and I preached on this a few weeks ago, what we read about there is Jesus acting as our great high priest, representing us before God when we make a mess of things. And because Jesus represents us before God, then despite what we might do, no matter how much of a mess we might make of things, no matter how much of a mess we might make of our lives, we can always find grace when we come back to God. So he can't be talking about Christian believers who go astray for a little while and make a mess of things. He must be talking about something else. One of the reasons the book of Hebrews was written and we see this right the way throughout the book, was to warn the readers not to give up on their faith in Jesus and not to give uh, up on the faith of Jesus and not to go back to Judaism, to return to their, own li- their old lives in Judaism. The people who this book was written for were Jews who'd become Christians. They had turned their backs on Judaism and they'd embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Now this book was written sometime before 70 AD, only 30 years or so after Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem, had risen again from the dead, and then had ascended into heaven. And the people it was written for were Jews. They'd put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. They'd left Judaism behind, and now they were believers in and followers of Jesus. 
that they were facing all kinds of pressure and even persecution from their fellow Jews who hadn't become Christians, their fellow Jews, often perhaps their family members and friends who hadn't embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And they were facing all kinds of pressure to, to abandon Jesus and their faith in Jesus and go back to what they once did. And that's the people that the writer has in mind throughout this book, but particularly in this little section that we're looking at this morning. And he's also trying to warn the remaining Jewish Christians who are reading this, this letter not to do the same thing. And so he says in verse 4, talking about those very people who had be Jews who had been trusted in Jesus, he writes about this about them. He says in verse 4, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. So he's not talking about genuine believers in Jesus who might make a mess of things. People like the prodigal son that Jesus talks about in that great parable. People like you and me. We are all prodigals to some level or other at some point or another in our lives. Most of us behave like prodigals on a regular basis to some degree or other. We, we, we wander away from God. We make a mess. We, we don't live as we ought to. But when we do, according to chapter 4, Jesus is there before God representing us as our great high priest. And that's fantastic, isn't it, to know that my relationship with God doesn't depend on how good I am or how well I behave. I should behave well, I should try to please God, but it doesn't depend on that. It depends on what Jesus did for me. It depends on who Jesus is. So it all depends on Jesus. It doesn't matter. It does matter if I make a mess. It does matter if I wander off, but it doesn't affect my salvation. He's not saying that you can be a genuine Christian believer who can then lose your faith and then somehow lose your salvation. Because if somebody has genuinely trusted in Jesus, then according to the Bible, they will then persevere in trusting in Jesus. They'll endure, they'll persevere until Jesus returns or until they die, whichever comes sooner. They might let God down, they might make a mess of things, they might wander away from God, they might have all kinds of struggles, but if they're genuinely saved, then they will persevere. They might do so just kind of clinging on by their fingertips, but they will do so. What he's talking about here are people that were Jews who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior, but then who at some point subsequent to that, perhaps quite a few years later, had completely abandoned that faith, that profession, that public statements that they'd made. They completely abandoned that and they'd gone back to Judaism, often because of the pressure and the persecution that they were facing. So this isn't somebody who's given into temptation and, and sinned in some way because when that happens, Jesus, our great high priest, is representing us there before the Father. It isn't somebody who's having a tough few weeks or months or maybe even years and is really struggling to live, to live out their faith because when that happens, Jesus, our great high priest, is there before the Father, before the throne of grace, representing us. He understands all our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He's there before God representing us. This is talking about somebody who has renounced their beliefs. They've completely rejected what they once said they believed. It's what's called apostasy or being an apostate. The word apostasy simply means the abandonment or renunciation of religious belief. In this case, the teachings of the Bible. But to be able to do that, to be able to be an apostate, a person can't have been a genuine believer in the first place. If a person is guilty of apostasy, it's because they were never truly saved in the first place. The writer says they'd once been enlightened, but that doesn't mean that they were actually born again. 
It just means that they've come to understand what the gospel means. And at some level or other intellectual level, they've accepted it. They like what they hear. They've professed faith in it. But it doesn't mean they've actually been born again. The, 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 the word gospel simply means good news. It's that whole package of, of, of good news that despite being sinners, despite being those who deserve God's eternal wrath, God loves us. And he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to come and die for us. So that if we repent, if we turn away from our sin and we turn in faith to Jesus, we can be forgiven, we can be accepted by God, we can come and be part of his family, we can be adopted as his children and receive eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the Bible. And these people had heard this. They'd been enlightened. The Greek word here literally means kind of light's been shone, they've kind of seen it doesn't mean they've really really genuinely accepted it but they've been enlightened they'd understood this and they'd responded to uh, some degree or other and they'd tasted the heavenly gift he says they'd, they'd explored it they'd understood it at least at an intellectual level they'd accepted the heavenly gift maybe intellectually the gift of forgiveness and salvation he says they shared in the Holy Spirit. They'd experienced the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church community, maybe even in their lives. And they'd seen the, the, the kind of work of the Holy Spirit to some degree or other in front of them. But this doesn't mean that they'd actually received the Holy Spirit. If he'd meant that, he'd have used that word. Because if they'd received the Holy Spirit, then they would have been born again and would have become God's possession for all eternity. Paul, talking about receiving the Holy Spirit, as opposed to tasting the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Paul says this, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Let's just pause there for a moment. It is God who makes us and you stand firm in Christ. It's not dependent on how good I am or whether I kind of keep going or not. It's God. It's all dependent on God and what he has done. It's God who makes us stand firm in Christ. Then he goes on, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So if a person has genuinely trusted in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside that person, transforms them from the inside out, links them with the Spirit of God, and that link can never be broken. It is God who stamps us with that mark of ownership, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And he uses this word of the Holy Spirit being like a down payment, a deposit, which guarantees that when he comes, we'll belong to him. So the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing our future. So once we've been genuinely saved, nothing and no one, not even ourselves, can ever change that status. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. The people that the author of Hebrews is talking about here hadn't received the Holy Spirit. They tasted it. They'd seen it, that they'd shared in it but they'd never actually genuinely given their lives to Jesus. Even though they might have thought they had, they might have professed faith, they might have been baptized, they were presumably active in church life, and it's possible to be all of those things and never genuinely born again. I know somebody who uh, was brought up in a church, who went along to church, was baptized, was a church member, was active in church, and then in their 20s realized, I've never been born again. I thought I was, but I wasn't. And then he got saved and then went on to live a, uh, a really fruitful life for Jesus. These are people who've never actually given their lives to Jesus. They've never truly been born again, even though perhaps they, thought they might have thought they had been and others thought they had. But they'd shared in the Holy Spirit. They'd understood the Christian message at kind of intellectual level. They'd seen the Holy Spirit at work around them. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God, he says. They'd, they've really liked what they've heard. 
They, they, they like it. I've, I've met with people, I've, I've done things like Alpha and Christianity, explored with people and get to the end of the course and they, they like what they're hearing and they're often professing faith, but I know, I can just sense, I don't think this person has been genuinely saved. They, they like what, what's on offer. They love the idea of having their, their sins forgiven, but they're not really surrendering their lives to Jesus. They've not genuinely been born again. He says they've tasted the powers of the coming age. They've seen the miraculous powers of the Spirit. They might even have been the recipients of healings themselves. But witnessing miracles and even being the recipient of a miracle doesn't guarantee a changed heart. It doesn't guarantee that that person will come to saving faith in Jesus. There were many people who witnessed Jesus' miracles but went on to crucify him, to reject him. We get an example of people behaving like this in John chapter 8. In, in John 8, verse 31, it says this, To the Jews who had believed him, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So just because they believed doesn't necessarily mean they were his disciples. Jesus puts a condition. He says, If you hold to my teaching. Jesus is talking to Jews who had believed him, but then when Jesus begins to go deeper, and if you read through all of John chapter 8, and he explains what believing in him and following him really looks like, and what it looks like to surrender your life to Jesus in an authentic and genuine way, they turned against him. And by the time you get to John chapter 8, verse 59, right at the end of the chapter, it says this, at this they picked up stones to stone him. So these are the same people at the beginning of the chapter, the Jews who believe Jesus, but by the end of the chapter 8, they're going to stone Jesus. They had believed in him and about him at one level, but they weren't genuinely saved. They didn't hold to Jesus' teaching. In other words, when they began to work out what it really means to follow Jesus, they decided they didn't want to be his disciples. And that's how we know whether someone has really, truly, and genuinely been saved. Do they hold to Jesus' teaching? Do they demonstrate by their lives that they have really been saved? And the writer of Hebrews is saying that for those who had been enlightened... Those who've understood the gospel message, they've understood it, that the good news about Jesus, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit to some degree, they've tasted the word of God and they've, and, and they've tasted the powers of the coming age. If they've understood and experienced all of these things and they then at some point in the future fall away, in other words, they decide to reject all that they've experienced and reject God himself, if they do this, it's impossible for them to be brought back again to repentance. If having once been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, a person deliberately then rejects Jesus, rejects Christ, then they are no longer acting in ignorance, and so there's no more mercy available for them. And they take upon themselves the responsibility for crucifying the Son of God. Now, the nation of Israel crucified Jesus, denying that he was the Son of God. In fact, the reason they put him to death was because he claimed to be the Son of God, and that was, that was the charge against him. That was why he was crucified, for blaspheming, for claiming to be God. But they did it in ignorance. But this person, the kind of person he's talking about in this passage, not now deceived by the priests in Jerusalem when they had Jesus put to death, nor acting any longer in ignorance, but instead knowing all the facts about Jesus because they've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, this person is taking on themselves the personal responsibility for crucifying the Son of God. That's what it means for a person to go back to Judaism from having professed faith in Jesus because to go back to Judaism was to reject Jesus and was to reject Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Jesus and Judaism were and are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. You can't practice Judaism and trust in Jesus. You can't accept Jesus. The two things are exclusive. 
if Jesus is not the Son of God, then he deserves to be crucified because he's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God. So he deserves to be crucified. Those who'd gone back to Judaism were effectively declaring that they were in agreement with the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what they were saying. They were saying, yeah, I agree. Jesus should have been crucified. And they were crucifying, as he says in this passage, the Son of God all over again, as he says in verse 6. And of such people, God himself, speaking through the writer of Hebrews, says that it's literally impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, God doesn't say it's impossible to forgive their sins. That's not what he says. What he's saying is that it's impossible to get them to change their minds if they take this step. You will never get them to repent or have anything more to do with Christ. And that's because the only thing that can bring a person to repentance is the power of the Holy Spirit. But once a person has decidedly rejected what the Holy Spirit is saying and who the Holy Spirit is and and the person of Jesus, then there's no other person in the whole wide world that can reach them. It's only the Holy Spirit that can bring repentance in the first place. And if somebody is rejecting what the Spirit has revealed to them, then they have put themselves outside of the ability to repent. If a person rejects the Holy Spirit knowingly and finally, along with the truth about Jesus that the Spirit has enlightened them about, there's nothing else that can save that person. And that's what Jesus said when he, that's what Jesus meant rather when he said this, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. And he says the same thing in Matthew 12. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will never be forgiven. If we reject the Holy Spirit and what he reveals to us about Jesus, then there is no more forgiveness. We can't be forgiven if we've rejected the Spirit and all that he's telling us. And that's what these folks, or some people in this church community that this book was written for, that's what some of them had done. Showing, demonstrating that they were never truly believers in the first place. Now it might be this morning that you've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God. And it might be that you're in that place, but you've never actually yet moved on and, and trusted in Jesus. You might still be someone who's not a believer, but you've been enlightened. You've got all this information now. You've, you've been enlightened and, and God has been good and, and, and gracious and, and shown you the truth. And now you've got a decision to make. Do you reject it or do you step forward and embrace it in faith and repentance? And if that's you this morning and you've not yet taken that step, you've been enlightened but you've not yet taken that step and genuinely surrendered your life to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him, then can I urge you to do that this morning? Don't delay. Now is the day of salvation, the book of Hebrews says. So don't, you know, once having been enlightened, if you're still undecided, if you're still not really sure, now is the time to step out in faith and trust in Jesus. Because if you don't and you take that decisive step to reject, according to what this passage teaches us, when we go back to where we were before, then there's no way back once we've taken that step. There's no way back. There's no possibility of repentance if we reject the Spirit and all that He has revealed to us. So if you've been enlightened this morning, can I encourage you to take that next step? Step out in repentance and faith and embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as your Savior. So this isn't talking about the genuine believer in Jesus who messes up and falls away for whatever reason, for a period of time, a few days, months, weeks, or even sometimes years. The writer is specifically talking about Jews who had professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior, but who then, perhaps due to the pressure uh, and persecution that they were facing from those around them, they turned their backs on Jesus finally and decisively and on the gospel message. And the reason that they'd done that was because they were never genuinely saved in the first place. They'd been enlightened, but they'd never stepped forward in faith 
and repentance. They, they might have thought they've done, they might have got caught up in the emotion of the moment, and other people might have thought they were genuine believers, but the reality, their actions proved that they hadn't. And later on in Hebrews 10, he makes the same point, referring to people guilty of the sin of apostasy. He says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So this isn't talking about you or I where we, we sin on a daily basis. This is talking about someone who, has, who deliberately keeps on sinning. The sin is the sin of apostasy. And when someone puts themselves in that situation, then they're beyond being able to repent. And all that awaits them is the fearful judgment of the wrath of God. If you're a believer this morning, but you've messed up or you're messing up right now, if you've wandered away from God, this passage isn't you. It's not talking about you. It's not referring to you. You have Jesus this morning representing you before the throne of grace, before God in, in heaven. And so you can run back into the arms of your loving heavenly Father, knowing that no sin that you commit is bigger than God's grace for you. You cannot outsin God's grace if you've genuinely trusted in Jesus. And so don't be panicking and thinking, oh, this is me because I screwed up this week. It's not you. The throne of grace is there and Jesus is there and he welcomes us and he's calling us to come back and get things squared up with God. Then he uses an agricultural illustration to hammer home the point. He says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. If you know the kind of Genesis narrative, you might recognize some kind of allusions there to the Genesis narrative of after sin had come into the world, the land, the world was cursed and thorns and thistles and so on. And what he's saying here is that those who've genuinely be saved, be been saved will produce the equivalent of a useful crop. They will persevere in their faith and they'll be a blessing to God and they'll be a blessing to their brothers and sisters and to the people all around them. Whereas those who've not been genuinely saved, and in this instance, they've rejected Jesus. They're like the land that just produces thorns and thistles. Their lives ultimately are worthless. And in the end, just as a diseased field would be burned by a farmer to clear it, so their lives will face God's eternal wrath in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Some of the folks who were in this community, this, this Christian community that this letter was written to, had turned their backs on Jesus. They'd gone back to Judaism. But the ones who'd stayed true to Jesus, because they were genuinely believers, they were persevering, the ones that had stayed true to Jesus were now reading this letter, what we call the book of Hebrews. And so he says to them, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. This is the proof that they were saved. He was confident and convinced that they wouldn't be guilty of apostasy. In fact, he was confident that they would do the very things that genuine believers do because they were genuine believers. And one of the things that uh, genuine believers should do and, and do is to love God by loving and caring for other Christian believers in a, in a self-sacrificial way. So he says in verse 10, that verse that we started with this morning in my story, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. They were people who had demonstrated their love for God by helping and caring for and loving those in their Christian family. When we, when we do that, when we care and love for each other, first and foremost, what we're doing is loving God. We love God by demonstrating how we love our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters. You see, true believers will show fruit. 
In other words, evidence that they're genuinely saved. If you want to know if an apple tree is really an apple tree, does it produce the fruit of apples? And true believers will show fruit. They will show evidence that they're genuinely saved. And, and one of the proofs that we're genuinely saved, not the only one, but, but one of the proofs that we're genuinely saved is that we love other believers. And we show this by the way that we behave. We can't profess on the one hand to love God and then hate our brother and sister. The Bible makes that expressly clear. We can't do that. That's impossible to love God and hate our brother and sister and, and hate them in our behavior. This church is brilliant at doing this kind of thing. Not hating our brother and sister, but, by, but, but loving our brothers and sisters. This church is brilliant at doing this. There's so much amazing stuff that goes on day in, day out behind the scenes that most of us are not even aware of. I, I get to be aware of it a little bit. I go and visit somebody and they say, oh yeah, I, uh, so-and-so came to see me this week and so-and-so and so-and-so phoned me and so-and-so did this. It's brilliant. It's all kind of going on s quietly, just getting on behind the scenes. People loving and caring for people. Visiting those in hospital. Doing the shopping for those who are housebound. Cooking meals for people who, you know, maybe someone's in hospital or whatever. Helping people with DIY. Opening up their homes to people in desperate need. Giving financially in a hugely sacrificial way. It's brilliant. This church is genuinely brilliant. Not every church is like this. This church is so good at doing this. And, and here at Regent, we've got a team of deacons whose job it is to coordinate that practical care and welfare within our church family and to those connected with our church. We've got Paul Burns and we've got Matt and Joe Scantlebury who do a fantastic and amazing job as deacons. But they can't do it all themselves. Their role isn't to do all of those things. Their role is to kind of bring that together and try and coordinate it. So if you can help them by cooking meals, for instance, for families when maybe one of the families in hospital or something like that, or by providing lifts for those who are in hospital, or by visiting perhaps somebody in hospital, or, or maybe doing some DIY for somebody who can't do that, somebody who's got injured or, or is ill or something like that, or, or maybe filling out some forms and helping somebody with some benefits claims, that kind of thing. If you can help somebody like that, if you can help with that kind of thing and say, yeah, I could do that. I, I can't come up and preach, but yeah, I can help with that. I can do that kind of stuff. God's put that on my heart to do. Then on your outline, there's uh, an email of Joe's. Uh, Joe coordinates this kind of stuff for the deacon. So if you can help like that and you think, yeah, I could do that, drop Joe an email this week. Joe is expecting your emails. I've warned her, okay? So don't worry. She's, she's expecting some emails. She said it's okay to put her email address on there. So you get busy this week and drop her a line and say, yeah, Joe, if you, didn't, if you didn't already know, I'm cool for some lists for hospital. I'm good for some meals. I'm happy to do this, some, some DIY, whatever it might be. And that would be a great way, wouldn't it, to put this kind of thing into practice here at Regent, loving God by loving our Christian brothers and sisters when they have practical needs, demonstrating that we are genuinely, truly believers. It's our strap line in action, isn't it? Passionate about God and passionate about people. Loving God, loving others. It's great to know, isn't it, that, that God is not unjust. He will not forget, the writer says, he will not forget the work we do and the love that we've shown him. When we serve others, when we love others, we, we firstly are actually loving God. We're showing our love to God. He is not unjust. He will, he will not forget the work that we do, the love that we've shown him, as we help other believers and continue to help them. And it's important that we continue to do that kind of thing. The writer says in verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit 
what has been promised. And next week we're going to see a great example of somebody who through faith and patience inherited what had been promised to him, Abraham. And we're going to look at that uh, next week. But here he's talking about the fact that, in other words, one of the ways that we prove that we really are believers in Jesus is by persevering in serving God right to the very end of our lives or until Jesus comes again. The way that we serve is going to change, and as we get older, we'll be able to do less and all that kind of thing. But it's an attitude of heart, isn't it? it it's a kind of direction of travel that we're in. We're saying, yeah, this is where I'm going. This is what I do. This is how I will try and live. And then, he says, we'll inherit what we've been promised, which is spending eternity with Jesus, celebrating his love for us forever. And here's the, the amazing thing that blows my mind. We get to share in his glory for all eternity. We get to share in the glory of Jesus for all eternity. Sometimes it's tiring, isn't it, to keep on loving others and, and keep on serving them. We, we can become weary in living like this. I certainly do. Maybe you guys are all just wonderful and, and it never kind of gets you down. It, it does for me occasionally, I'll be honest. Because our natural way is to look after ourselves, isn't it? Well, I just want some me time. I just want to look after my needs. But... And there's a, there's a time and a place for all that. But to step out and say, how can I show my love for God as I love my Christian brothers and sisters? We can become weary of doing that, especially if, we, if it's what we're majorly serving in the church. But these verses encourage us to keep doing this, to keep on pressing on, to keep living like this and keep loving like this because it's one of the ways that we show our love to God. Paul says this in his letter to the church in Galatia. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, but you've wandered away from him, maybe you are away from him right now. You are wandering big time. Maybe you are. That's where you're at this morning. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to come back and return to Jesus, to return and come running into God's arms, the Father who loves you, the Father who sent his Son to die for you and just wants you back in his embrace, to that throne of grace where grace just overflows. You can never outsin God's grace. If you're somebody who, maybe as per uh, verse 4, you've been enlightened, you've, you've kind of understood all this stuff, you've understood the gospel, but you've yet to actually step out in faith and surrender your life to Jesus, then can I challenge you to take that step? Don't mess around with this. This is your eternal destiny at stake. Now is the time to do that this morning. And if you're a believer in Jesus, then what could you do? What can we do to show our love for God in the way that we serve and help our Christian brothers and sisters in this church and beyond. Let's just bow our heads and maybe just for a few moments uh, pause and reflect. What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? What is the Holy Spirit enlightening you about this morning? What, is he sh what light is He shining into your heart? What, what new thing, what thing perhaps you're just being reminded of? What's He saying? And, and if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, then don't ignore Him. Respond to what he says. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father. Although that you are the awesome, holy, holy, holy God, the one who is that consuming fire, but you burn up all your enemies before you. Thank you that though you are that one, yet you too now we can call.
call you our Father. We can call you Abba. All because of Jesus. We can come running into your arms this morning and experience your grace, which just never stops flowing. Thank you that you've adopted us. If we've trusted in you, you've adopted us into your family. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're not ashamed to call us your brothers and sisters. Thank you, that God, that you're our Father. Help us to live with that joy, with that release, with that freedom of knowing whose we are and who we are. Help us to love you and in some small way to return your love to us by loving you back. Help us to do that partly, Father, through how we serve our brothers and sisters, how we love those around us in our church family and beyond. Thank you for this church, which really does do that on such an amazing level. Pray that you bless each person who's secretly serving away, privately serving and loving others, often out of sight without any recognition. But thank you, Lord, that you recognize all that we do. Nothing that we do for you is, is unnoticed. You are not unjust. And we will one day receive that great reward for all those things that we do for you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your outrageous grace, your amazing grace. Lord, I pray this morning for anybody who has been enlightened but has yet to actually step out in true faith and, and trust in you. Lord, would they do that this morning, I pray. Father, we thank you that it's all about Jesus and it's all about what Jesus has done for us. And this morning as we, we sing now together in Christ alone, we thank you that it's Jesus who commands our destiny. Our destiny isn't down to us, it's Jesus who commands our destiny. Thank you that we, once we're in your hands, are safe and secure. And we look forward to that day, Father, when one day we will share outrageously in the glory of Jesus. And we will be rewarded for all eternity, when we will celebrate your love for all eternity. We praise you, we worship you, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The band are going to lead us in one final song.